So I was 17, and it was Christmas morning. And our family was about to, you know, participate in the typical Christmas tradition in our home. And so my sister and I sprung out of bed really early. We drug our parents out of their bedroom. And then we went into the living room where we semi-patiently waited by the shiny, mysteriously red presents while they went into the kitchen to get their coffee. And so about 89 years later, they came out of the kitchen <laughs> with their coffee, uh, and we were able to start wrap, you know, unwrapping the presents. And what once was just a nice pile of tidy, uh, organized, shiny wrap presents became this just chaotic pile of crumpled wrapping paper and bows and ribbons. And finally, I came down to my last box, my last gift. Save the best for last, right? And I was kind of like one of those creepy Marvel comic book hero uh, skills where I could just look at a present or touch it and know what it was. Some of you know that, some of you have that gift. So my mom would never let me touch stuff in advance. You can't touch the presents. Don't look at the presents. Don't even go into the room, you know? And so I, I grabbed this box and I had no clue what it was. I was totally puzzled. I started touching it and squeezing it, thinking, oh, I wonder what it is. I wonder what it is. It's like, well, it's, it's, too, it's, too, it's too small to be shoes. It's too big to be like a watch or something. It's too heavy to be like electronics. And it's too light to be tools. So I had no idea what it was. So I started unwrapping this box. And as I started unwrapping the box, slowly but surely, one letter at a time met me. B-I-B-L-E. It was a Bible. In fact... It was this Bible right here. And I opened it up, and I was looking through it, and my mom had written a little note in there, and she said, Chad, may you continue to turn to the words of the Lord for your peace and happiness. Merry Christmas, love, Mom and Dad. And to be quite honest, I think I was conflicted as a 17-year-old. Because part of me was waiting for, like, where's the money? Is there going to be money falling out of here? Like, <laughs> is there a pair of socks under that too? You know, like, something cooler in the box? But at the same time, I was a pretty new Christian. And I really wanted my own Bible. My mom got me a study Bible. And I tell you what, this was the gift that kept on giving, right? And, and, and day after day and week after week, I start to open up the pages of God's word. I would receive uh, insights. I would pursue God and learning about God, learning from God, from his word. And I think about all the other presents I've opened on my life. I, I think this may be the remaining gift from my childhood. I think everything else is either broken or you outgrew it or you got rid of it, right? But this one has stayed with me and has kept on delivering every time I open it. How about you? Do you remember the first place you were when you got your first Bible? Or maybe the first person who gave you your first Bible? Which, by the way, if you're here... Uh, and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you your first Bible. Stop by the information center on the way out. We've got lots and lots of Bibles. We'd love to give you a free Bible. If you don't have one, if you're watching online live, um, you'll just have to order online, I guess. But anyways, um, the, the, the Bible's phenomenal. And we're going to be talking about the Bible today as we continue in this series called Living New. And we're looking at some foundational beliefs of the Christian faith through the lens of six characteristics that we believe take place in our lives and how we will see ourselves if we're growing in our faith, if we're growing as a disciple of Jesus, that we truly will start to see ourselves as a beloved child of God, as a self-feeder, as an investor, as a servant, as a, a discipler, and as a missionary. And so uh, I just want to say thank you for all the feedback you guys have been giving us related to this series. Just It's been three to four weeks of just constant, enthusiastic responses face-to-face and writing about how God's already growing you. And we knew that would happen. We said, if you go to church or if you miss, watch online, get in a life group, do the study. We have the, the workbooks 
um, you know, do the study, you'll grow. And we've just been so grateful for everyone that's been giving us feedback. I had a woman pull me aside this morning, just enthusiastically saying, this study's been so good for me. Like, I've known this stuff, I grew up with this stuff, but revisiting it's been refreshing, and I'm seeing new things, and it's growing me. I had another lady last week, she said, man, I bought 12 of the books and, and sent them out to my family. Uh, they're in different states. In fact, uh, I got you know, someone in Florida that's watching the messages. And so a shout out to the, all of you that are watching online, out of state and following along. Uh, some people have downloaded the Kindle version and are following along. So God's using it, and we're very grateful for that. Well, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about what it means to be a beloved child. And we've been talking about things like the assurance of our faith. As a beloved child of God, we can be assured of our faith. We talked about prayer. Now we need to be in connection and communication with the Heavenly Father. We looked last week, and Pastor Josh did an amazing job looking at living holy or sanctification. We spent all last week in our material looking at sanctification. Heard a lot of great feedback about that. My life group, man, just, we had a great time talking about that. Well, now we're going to spend the next couple weeks to looking at what it means to be a self-feeder. And so we're going to be looking a lot about the scriptures, and we're going to be looking at the Bible. And so as a self-feeder, that means we're one who takes initiative for our spiritual growth by diving into the Bible and learning about the truths of God. Now, the Bible is the most read book in the entire earth, right? All history, most, uh, most sold, most distributed, most read book in the history of the earth. And the Bible is supernatural, it's credible, it's reliable, it's true, it's trustworthy. And I'm sure there's someone watching right now or someone in this room going, I'm not sure about that. Well, my encouragement to you and our encouragement to you is just study it and learn it and read it and really open up your mind and heart. Many men and women have stepped out to say, ah, the Bible's just a, a you know, relic. It's just this old book. It doesn't have anything to do with their lives. And for the men and women who truly went on a quest to discover um, what it is about the Bible, most of them get saved, converted, and become true believers because of the study that they encounter in the Word. And as beloved children of God, we love the Bible. We love the word of the Lord, and we also love the Lord of the word, right? And as followers of Jesus, the Bible to us is a roadmap. It's a blueprint. It's an owner's manual. It's a love letter from God. And as self-feeders, we open the Bible daily to learn, to study, and to be nourished by the very words of God himself. And so as self-feeders, we learn the word of God to live the word of God. We learn it to live it. That's really what we want to talk about today. And so with that being said, I want to take a look at one of the core passages of Scripture about the Bible. If you've been in church for any length of time, this verse should be familiar to you. If you're new to the faith or exploring the Christian faith, this verse might be new, and I hope it's encouraging to you today. I'm inviting all of you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And this verse really helps us answer the questions, why the Bible? Like, why do we believe the Bible? Why do we let the Bible impact our life the way we do? And what benefits do we experience in our lives from the Bible? And so, obviously, we'll put these verses on the screen, but I'm trusting all of you have your own Bible, whether it's, you know, a hard copy or whether you have it on an app or something. So fire up those apps, get into your Bibles. We want to look at this verse together. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And what we're seeing here is the Apostle Paul has been used by the Lord to pin this scripture to a young man that he's mentoring or discipling named Timothy. And here's what we find. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. And God, thank you so much that the men and women who are watching online, the men and women right now in this room, God, have come here. They've logged on. Lord, they could be doing so many other things. They could still be sleeping. They could be sipping coffee by uh, a porch or a fireplace somewhere. They could be out hanging out with their friends. They could be uh, working on hobbies, Lord, but they're here. And so, God, I believe you have something for them. You, you, you want to encourage them somehow. You want to inspire them. You want to speak to them somehow, Lord God. So, Lord, speak. Holy Spirit, speak. Our ears are open. Our hearts are open. Our minds are open, Lord. We want you to instruct us. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you that it's holy. Thank you that it's sacred. Thank you that it's living. Thank you that it's true. And God, remind us of why we believe that today as we spend time in your word. Lord, we do pray for our nation. We do know with this election you're coming up, God, we want to continue to pray for the leaders. Lord, we know that uh, there's a lot of discouragement in the hearts of people. God, may you just continue to remind us that you hold all things in your hand. Our future is not in the hands of any man or woman that walks on earth, but in the King of kings and Lord of lords who holds the earth. And God, we trust in you. So Lord, give us wisdom to know what to speak and how to speak and when to hold our tongue, how to be responsible, Lord. Steer us away from irresponsibility and toward influence. And we just trust you as we approach these next couple months with this on the radar. So Lord, again, we turn our hearts to your word and we ask this in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen. amen. A self-feeder is one of the first things we're going to learn from this passage about God's word is that self-feeders pursue the learning of God's word. Self-feeders pursue the learning of God's word. Paul was urging Timothy to pursue the learning of God's word. Look at verse 14a again. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Now, historically and specifically, this is geared toward Timothy, but we know this applies to us as well now. Now, Timothy had learned about the Lord. He heard about the gospel of Jesus. He heard about the basics of the faith. He heard about the rich history and theology that was present in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, for those who might not know, is a history of God's people. All how, how God had interacted with God's people prior to the birth of Jesus. Now, we also think that Timothy had in his mind the teachings of Jesus handed down by the apostles, including Paul. And so Timothy firmly believed the words of the Lord. But Paul's saying, that's great that you believe that. Hold that firm. Now press forward. Continue to learn. Pursue more learning. And so like Timothy, we anchor ourselves in the foundational truths of what we learned about God, the gospel, his word. Uh, we've learned them firmly. We believe them. And then we pursue additional understanding and application. We don't abandon the gospel of Jesus. We don't distort the beliefs or modify them. We are anchored to the foundations of the faith while keeping constantly learning, continuing in, pursuing the learning of God's word. And he continues on, verse 14 and 15. Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, many of you can echo that, that from your childhood, you've been acquainted with Scripture. Some of us, self-included, were not acquainted with Scriptures from a young age. I'm grateful that I received this Bible when I was 17. I'm grateful that I was exposed to God's Word as a teenager. But man, there was a huge gap that I didn't have. Some of you have been raised by, by godly parents. You have a long lineage, and, and you need to praise God for that. Well, what was Timothy's lineage? Who's he talking about? Paul's saying, remember who you learned God's Word from. Well, who's he talking about? 
Well, if you were to go back to the beginning of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 5, you hear Paul say this, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. Timothy was a second-generation Christian. Grandma and mom went before him. And so, praise God for these godly women who, once they learned about God's word, started to impart this to their uh, son and grandson and acquainted him with the ways of the Lord. And so, again, for those of you who have that in your history, you praise God for that. And the reminder here that we see is that we're all called to influence the next generation in God's word, right? We're all called to influence our children and our grandchildren and our brothers and sisters and our nephews and nieces and just whoever God brings in our life, we're to influence the next generation in the scriptures. But as we look at this, not only do we celebrate what Timothy had, but we're a little bit curious about what he didn't have. Who's clearly absent in this little narrative right now? Where's Timothy's dad? Where's Timothy's dad on the scene, right? Well, if we were to look at Acts 16.3, we see that Timothy's dad was Greek. So he was holding to Greek spiritual beliefs. And so uh, Eunice was doing this on her own. She was a a spiritual single parent, if you will. And so I'm sure we don't know much else about Timothy's dad. I'm sure he was a good guy, but he didn't know, uh, he didn't have anything to bring to the table for Timothy spiritually. And so his dad was off the radar and didn't help spiritually raise Timothy. Now we just have to pause there. Man, we got to camp out here for a minute, right? let's, Let's talk about this for a second. God has instructed us to be the spiritual leaders of our homes. We're to lovingly lead our beautiful brides and our treasured kids. If we don't lead our kids in the Lord, but choose passive spiritual leadership, then faithful women will do it without us. Praise God for those faithful women. But if we keep food on the table, if we keep the lights on in the house, if we have the car tuned up, if the yards look great, but our kids leave our homes without knowing the Lord, walking with the Lord, hearing from the Lord, knowing God's word, did we really succeed as fathers? We did not. We did not, because we abandoned the most important calling that God's given us. So praise God for the Loises and the Eunices of the world, but men, we can't abandon our role of leading our kids to know the Lord. We can't take notes from Timothy's dad. Now, we applaud all of you, by the way, who are single parenting, not just literally, but also spiritually, because some of you, your spouse is not in agreement with your faith, and you're trying to raise your kids to know the Lord on your own. We know it's challenging. And we just commend you. And you know what? Just continue to lean on the Lord and depend on the Lord and be faithful. And just just, just encourage you. God is with you, and he'll give you all that you'll need to raise those uh, little boys and little girls in the ways of the Lord. Amen? Amen? Now, not only did Timothy have faithful family members to teach him the word of God. Oh, he had this little guy mentoring him called the Apostle Paul. Right? Not... When he says, think about whom taught you, I think that's not just his grandma and his mom, but I think there's an implication of himself, that Paul has poured into his life. What a great reminder of the need for Christian community. Man, our families are great, but we also benefit greatly from having spiritual mentors who disciple us and being a spiritual mentor who disciples others. That's why we're incessant and we'll continue to be incessant about you being in a life group. And we got to be in community. And it's amazing if we have Christian family, but you just can't grow alone. You've got to be with others. So every Timothy needs a Paul pouring into their life. Every Paul needs to have a Timothy that they're pouring into. We all need to be in Christian community. And so we need to be learning about God's word together. 
not just from our family, but also from the mentors in our life. Now, some of you are bummed because when you hear this kind of language, you're thinking, I don't have that kind of family member. I've never had that kind of mentor. You know what? If you've never had one, just be one. Just start to be one. Just start. Just say, God, you've given me everything I need. Look, if you have Jesus Christ in your life and you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God and you've been spending time in the Lord's work and the Lord's word, you're qualified. God will use anybody who's just willing. And so we got to continue to be faithful to invest in the lives of others. So if you don't have one, be one. Now, back to the passage. <laughs> a little sermon inside a sermon there. If you look at verse 15, we're told how Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, we know that this means the Old Testament writings, but we do, again, believe this uh, goes on to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. Now, uh, why is it that we believe that the Bible is the sacred writings. One of the things that I quickly picked up on when I moved to Ohio years ago um, was I heard about Ohio State, and I'm like, okay, Ohio State. And I was corrected many times. No, the Ohio State. <laughs> yes, okay, I got it. I got it, right? Okay, I got it. Hey, look, the Bible's not the only sacred writings out there. The Bible's not, you know, the only spiritual um, text. So maybe it's not the only writings, but it's the sacred writings, Right? It's above all. And so we need to understand why. Why is the Bible superior to all other historical religious writings? What makes the Bible unique? Why do we believe it? Uh, why do we believe what we believe about the Bible? I mean, we believe that the Bible is God's revelation. It's God's revealing of himself and his knowledge to us that we would otherwise not know. It's God's inspiration, supernatural divine guidance given to the writers and then given to us, captured accurately and reliably. Yeah, he used man, all right, but he didn't you know, say, hey, just do it and I'll sign off on it. And he didn't use them like robots. God did this beautiful um, combination of telling them what to write and overseeing it so that it was correct. And it was given to us, God's inspiration. It's God's perfection. It's completely inerrant, without flaw. It's God's illumination. Through correct interpretation, God gives us direction and application through his word. You know, I love what... A man named Elmer Towns says, Elmer Towns, a pastor, a theologian, scholar, and co-founder of Liberty University, he says, either the Bible is the word of God and must be accepted as from God, or is the greatest forgery ever printed and must be rejected. And that's the bottom line. And so as we think about why we believe the Bible, here's what happens. A lot of us get in conversations about why we believe the Bible, and then we get stuck. We're like, I, I don't know how to, I don't know where to go from there. Like, how do I explain what, what I believe about the Bible? Well, there's a guy who's a theologian, professor, author, and he's also president of an organization called Christian Research Institute named Hank Hinegraaf. He gave us a great tool. And the tool, he says, is remember the acronym MAPS, M-A-P-S, MAPS. MAPS stands for this, Manuscripts, Archaeology, Prophecy, and Statistics, all right? So MAPS stands for what? Let's say it together. Manuscripts, Archaeology, prophecy, and statistics. Let's just, let's just touch on those. These are just scratching the surface. If you want to talk about why we believe in the Bible, we can look at just the manuscripts, for example. The manuscripts refer to the amount of copies made from the originals. We don't have the originals. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies known as manuscripts, right? And so we have over 14,000 manuscripts and fragments of the Old Testament. Now, obviously, if you want to talk about the biggest find, the biggest find was the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947. A little shepherd boy lost a sheep. He's throwing rocks in a cave, throws one in a cave, hears a weird sound, goes in there. There's all these jars, clay jars with scrolls, right? And over the next 10 years, 
they discovered in 11 different caves tens and thousands of scrolls and fragments dating anywhere from 250 B.C. to 68 A.D. And they contained almost every book of the Old Testament. And the copies of those match what you hold in your hand. Like, think about that for a second. They find a scroll with a section of Isaiah, and you open up your Bible in your hand to the book of Isaiah, and they match. Okay? So Destiny Scrolls were huge. And uh, just thousands of years. Now, we also, as far as the New Testament, presently have over 24,000 New Testament manuscripts in existence. There's no other historical secular writing that comes even close. Like, when you look at that graphed out, I mean, look at that. Like, second place goes to Homer's Iliad with 643 copies. Aristotle only has 49 copies. When you study the manuscripts of the New Testament, and especially if you include the Old Testament, and compare them with any other writing known to man, it's a drop-the-mic moment. It's done. There's no comparison. And it keeps happening, by the way. We keep seeing this lived out. Like, for example, just a few months ago, they, they, they had had a burned scroll that they found in Israel in a place called En Gedi by the Dead Sea. This scroll was found in 1970, burned, okay? Scientists, just a few months ago, did a micro CT scan on the scroll, and then a professor of the University of Kentucky virtually unrolled it with 3D imaging software. It was a portion of the book of Leviticus. It was the most ancient Hebrew scroll found since anything of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Shockingly, the section of Leviticus that was unrolled digitally matches Leviticus that sits in your hand right there. Over and over and over and over again, the manuscript evidence is just a drop-the-mic argument to what we have today. But that's not alone. We also have archaeology, one of my favorite parts. Archaeology. Now, the arguments against the Bible shrink with every excavation that takes place in the Middle East. Cities that said no longer, you know, oh, that city never existed. They get unearthed. Historical events that, oh, we don't have any historical record of that, becomes found. The names of biblical and historical people are confirmed. For example, just a couple small examples. For example, in 1993, there was an inscription stone or a stele from the 9th century BC that was found in northern Israel known as Tel Dan. On it was inscribed an Aramaic, an account by an Aramean king having victory in a battle over the Israelites and the house of David. This was the first time that a non-biblical source validated the biblical history. So that's just, that's just one fine, okay? Last week, they had an interesting find. This is kind of humorous and funny, but awesome at the same time. Now, in 2 Chronicles chapters 29-31, there was a king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah went on a reform of Israel. Man, it was a revival, it was renewal, and they were tearing down false places of worship. Uh, the Hebrews that were everywhere setting up their own little places of worship, they destroyed those and said, no, it needs to happen in Jerusalem, that's where God told us to do this. And so Hezekiah had his reforms. Now, uh, they had a group of people that were digging recently in an area of the time of Hezekiah in the ancient city of Lachish, and they discovered what's called a desecrated shrine from Hezekiah's time. What it is is they found a stone toilet, all right? Well, what's the deal with the stone toilet? Well, there was a king years before Hezekiah that showed us that this was part of uh, the ways that they desecrated pagan or false places to worship. In 2 Kings 10, 27, this king, Jehu, destroyed the cult of Baal in Samaria. And what we see in 2 Kings 10, 27 is they demolished the pillar of Baal and they demolished the house of Baal and made it into a latrine to this day. And so this was a common practice that they would desecrate these pagan things. By, they, they might not use the toilet, but they would install a toilet just to be like, yeah, now, now you know what we think of your gods, okay? And so Hezekiah 
had defeated this area during his reforms, and they found a toilet inside a, a, a shrine that had been desecrated. Again, just evidence of the culture and the time and the history. Funny, but interesting. So that's archaeological. We have the manuscript evidence. We have archaeological evidence. We also have prophecy, the predictive ability to tell the future. Nothing does this like the Bible. Nothing can do this like the Bible. This is the one argument about the Bible that plagues critics and skeptics the most because the Bible has historical accounts and predictions that are fulfilled hundreds and sometimes thousands of years later. And we're still waiting for some of those to take place with the return of Christ. And so you've got um, the foretelling of future kings that would reign or be conquered, the destruction of cities, especially prophecies related to the Messiah and the fulfillment that was found in Jesus as far as the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Uh, he'll be crucified with criminals. The soldiers will gamble for his clothes and on and on and on and on and on. The prophecies of scripture is really a silver bullet to the skepticism of the Bible and has no other logical explanation than divine intervention. Prophecy alone is huge about why we believe the Bible. So we believe it because, one, God said it, but if you want to use reasonable argument, we got to look at the manuscript evidence. You look at the archaeological evidence. You look at the prophecy evidence. And lastly, statistics. Look, you can't get two people under one roof to agree, right? Well, let's think about that. How hard is it to get like just a couple people under one roof to agree? The Bible was written over the course of 1,500 years. God used over 40 different human authors with different backgrounds, languages, cultures, and they were written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, on hundreds of subjects. Yet, there is one consistent, unified, non-contradictory theme that runs through the entire Bible, God's redemption of fallen mankind through his Messiah. You find that from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Jesus, the most unique figure of all history, resides in the scriptures from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Statistically impossible. This is, not, this is not a book, one book, made of many stories. It's one story made of many books. That's statistically impossible, but God did it. And that's why we believe, one of the reasons we believe in that today. So maps, manuscript, archaeology, prophecy, statistics. This book is indeed, as verse 16 says, God breathed. I love that term. It says all scripture is breathed out by God. That's theonustros, right? It means God breathed. Just as God breathed the breath of life into the first humans, Adam and Eve, God has breathed his life into his words. Like, I just want you to wrap your mind around that for a second. When you open the word of God to spend time in the word of God, you are in words breathed out by God. That's crazy. And that's why the Bible tells us that his word is living and active and sharp. And it can, it can penetrate us and divide our motives and our intentions. But like like all, all of that, this, this is God's word. It's God breathed. It's not man breathed. It's God's word, not man's word. Over 3,000 times, all the different authors in scripture claim the messages that they received were from the Lord. Expressions like, thus saith the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Uh, the word of the Lord was this. Over 3,000 times, authors mention this. I like what uh, C. Ryle, a pastor, or Riley, a pastor and author of the 1800s said. The book itself is the best witness of its own inspiration. It is utterly inexplicable and unaccountable in any other point of view. It is the greatest standing miracle in the world. He that dares say the Bible is not inspired, let him give a reasonable account of it if he can. 
Let him explain the peculiar nature and character of the book in a way that will satisfy any man of common sense. The burden of proof seems to my mind to lie on him. Man, the Bible, self-feeders pursue the learning of this amazing, divine, supernatural book, God's word. But why? What's the point of all this? What's the point of trusting the Bible? And how does it help us live our life? Well, let's think about this. If the Bible has told us how it was, historical accuracy, and if the Bible has told us what it's going to be like by fulfilled prophecy, then the Bible can tell us how it is <laughs> and how we should be living in a way pleasing to God and what we can believe in and be acting upon now. And because of that, self-feeders also experience the power of living in God's word. Not only do we pursue the, the learning of God's word, we experience the power of living in God's word. See, the Bible's not just for head knowledge, but it's for life transformation. There, there are great benefits uh, to applying what we learn from God's word. There's power in living in God's word. That's why we learn it to live it. Now look at verse 15 again. It says that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Huge benefit, right? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible reveals a need for our souls to be saved. When you read through scriptures, you learn about sinfulness. You learn about how we are sinful and how we're opposed to God in our very being. It didn't start out that way, but because of the fall of mankind, the fall explains everything that we find dissatisfying and painful now. And so uh, we look at that, and the Bible doesn't just speak to um, why our souls need to be saved. It also tells us how our souls can be saved, the means of which we can have our souls saved, which is through faith in Christ. And so the Scripture makes us wise to salvation. So that's why the Bible's teaching on Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection makes us wise to salvation, the saving of our souls due to sinfulness. And so the life and the mission of Jesus is one of the most unique and weighty aspects of the Bible. Scripture doesn't save. The, the, the Bible doesn't save. Like you can hold this. You can be buried with it. You, you can, whatever. The, the Bible doesn't save you. It tells you how you can be saved. Jesus even said that. Jesus was hanging out with some religious leaders, some Pharisees that basically said, ah, oh, the way to find eternal life is just by, by doing the scriptures. You know what he said to them in John 5, 39? He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And what is Jesus saying? Hey, good thing you're in the word, but by the way, if you're in the word, they're just gonna tell you about me. And so man, the, for, for, for most of us here, most of us watching online, we might know Christ. We might know everything the Bible has to say about why we need Christ because of our sinfulness, about the death of Christ on the cross for our sins, about the resurrection of Jesus from the grave to conquer sin and death. But there's probably some of you sitting here or even watching online, you don't have a relationship with God. You're not right with God. Man, God wants you to know that he's given you the understanding of how you can be made right with him. And he's provided the means to be made right with him through Christ. And all it takes for you to be right with God is to understand and acknowledge and believe that. And to say, God, I'm a mess. I'm broken. I'm sinful. And I, I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave. And I'm going to believe that. I'm going to put all my eggs in that basket. I'm going to trust in you. And if, if you're here today and you're ready to do that, you, you just tell the Lord that. It's just a decision. It's a response to the Lord saying, I'm going to believe. I'm going to follow. If you do that today, make sure you let us know. There's a card in front of you. There's a response card in your program. You can email us online at connect at cvconline.org and just say, I'm following Christ starting today. We want to help you grow. 
I want to help you understand what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. But the Bible makes us wise to salvation through faith in Christ. But not only that, look at verse 16. God's word also is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. When we experience the power of living in God's word by embracing it, we get teaching. Now, the teaching here is basically understanding the true way, the right way, God's way. This is doctrine. This is theology. This is a renewing of the mind. This is God teaching you what's true and what's right. So I just want to throw up a few questions that as you're reading the Bible, as you're studying the Bible, here's some good questions that you can apply in a moment to some of these passages. In relation to teaching, you can ask yourself, what's the truth that God wants me to know from this passage? What's the truth that God wants me to know from this verse that I just read? The second thing we get here that this verse talks to is reproof. Just a disclaimer, this will not be our favorite word for the morning. Reproof. It means to convince or to expose, to refute, like to refute an opponent. God's word has the power to expose the sin in our lives. And then the power to rebuke it, convince us that we're wrong. And so if you're not allowing the Bible to confront sin in your life, then you're not really growing in righteousness as God would want you to do. Like, let's be honest. The Bible isn't always going to be just a warm, fuzzy, quiet time. Like if, if every single time you're reading God's word, it's like, oh, that was just awesome. That was just, I just, ah, oh, just a warm hug from God every time. There are times when we're going to open the word of God and we need to be like, dang, that hurt. Man. Because God's word is going to put a spotlight on the things in our life that make us uncomfortable. The way we treat others, attitudes, actions, beliefs, behaviors. So reading God's word can feel like that big hug from God, but sometimes it feels a little bit like a spanking too, you know, out of his love, out of his discipline. And so a great question to ask ourselves when we're studying God's word in light of that would be, what attitudes or behaviors or thoughts does this passage confront or rebuke in my life? And if you want to go deeper and you want to grow, then start asking that question when you're in the word of God. Not only is it for training, not only is it for reproof, but it's also for correction. And the word here in the original really talks about making straight, to make straight. Do you know that we can't walk in a straight line? Did you know that? They've done studies on this. One of the most recent studies is by a guy for the NPR Science Reporter. His name is Robert Krolwich. He did a big study. He blindfolded a bunch of people. He put them in uh, poor visibility environments. Guess what he learned? You walk in circles. You think you're walking straight, but you're not. And this is what he said. He goes, Humans apparently slip into circles when we can't see an external focal point. Without a corrective, our insides take over and there's something inside us that won't stay straight. <laughs> well, you said it there, buddy. <laughs> he doesn't even have a clue how deep that one goes, huh? If, if, if we don't physically see something to walk toward, we just start to drift into a circle. Like now some of you want to go home and try this, I know. Put a blindfold on your kid. Hey, hey, walk. See what you do. Scripture's our focal point. God knows us, doesn't he? So you're going to walk in circles. Or maybe he's going, why are you still walking in circles? He's given us his word as a focal point so we can look at it and be corrected. Walk straight to straighten us out. God's word uh, straightens us out. That's what it's there for. So a great Study question for us when we're reading the Bible in light of that is, how might this passage straighten out certain thinking 
or beliefs or misunderstandings in my life. Don't you love the aha moments in scripture where maybe you kind of had this assumption or you just kind of gave this quick little belief and then later on you dig into it and you're like, oh, wow. And God corrects. He straightens out, which is crooked. It's a beautiful thing. Also, we see here that the Bible is good for training in righteousness. See, the Bible doesn't just point out where we're wrong and then leave us there. It tells us how to get right with God and right with others, and right with ourselves. God's work, word equips us to live pleasing to the Lord, like training a child. Just as parents work with their children over the years to train them, like to have social graces, morals, relational skills, good habits, God's word trains us in all areas of our life so that we can know what pleases him. This is a direct tie to what we studied last week with sanctification. The Bible helps us live holy, to live sanctified as children of God. So a great study question to ask ourselves is, how does the passage help prepare me for a moral, mental, emotional, or spiritual challenge in my life? So here's the deal. God's given us his word for all these things. But why? Look at verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That we may be complete. That means to be equipped. That means to be furnished. That means to be supplied. You know what's so cool about the Bible there is no problem in life. There's no situation in life that God doesn't speak to in his word, either directly or through principles that his word speaks to. Either the principles of scripture or the direct teaching of scripture affects us on every level with every decision we're gonna relate with. How do I relate to my spouse? How do I raise my children? How do I relate to others? How do I manage my money? How do I conduct my business? How do I make wise decisions? How should I think? How can I control my emotions such as anger and depression and anxiety and impulsiveness and fear? How do I overcome temptation? And God speaks to all these things in his word either directly or through principles he's given us in his word. And so it's not just information. It's designed to bring transformation into our life. And as we're transformed, then it brings application. We're to live God's word out. See, when you, when you look at this passage, it says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here's where we've gone wrong in the church. We are not, uh, God did not intend to give us his word so that we can just sit and study, 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 and get fat brains of knowledge about God's word, and then not do anything with it. That's one of the reasons the church is not as effective in loving people and reaching people as it could be. It's because we sequester ourselves and just learn, and then we don't do what it says right here, that it equips us for every good, what? Work. What, what good is it if you gain knowledge and then do nothing with it? Some of you are frustrated because maybe you spent years in school learning a certain type of trade and then you end up doing something different, right? Where you never use what you spent all those thousands and hours and thousands of dollars on. That's frustrating. I think we frustrate God. I think we frustrate the world God put us in when we just learn, 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 and we go, hey, look at my personal spiritual library. Isn't that great? And God's going like, when are you actually going to use any of that? You have a brand new car in your garage and it has no miles on it. It's like, man, we're supposed to be using this to do God's work. That's the point of the word. It's experienced most. God's, the power of God's word is experienced most when we live it, when we put it to work. We're equipped for every good work. So it's not just selfish motives that should compel us to study the Bible. When we study the Bible, there should be a part of us that going, Lord, how is what I'm learning right now going to help me bless others, serve others, love others, help others? not just my little hug from you today. There's nothing wrong with that. We need those little hugs from God, right? But that doesn't stop there. 
It doesn't stop there. We're equipped to do every good work. So yes, we are beloved children of God. Because of that, we grow in our ability to be self-feeders who pursue the learning of God's word and experience the power of living in God's word. We learn it to live it. That's why we have this amazing book. And today is just a scratch on the surface. I know that as you dig into the study this week, man, there's going to be five days of taking what we just spent time on and digging deeper. I hope you love it. I hope it grows you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it encourages you. I hope you get more knowledge. I hope you get more insight. But so that you can use it for the good works that God has us for. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, I'm so thankful for this Christmas gift I've got 28 years ago. Lord, you gave it to us long before that. (laughs) So God, we're thankful that you've given us your word. Thankful that you've spoken to us. Lord, we sometimes want to know how we can hear from you. God, you've, you've put it together, you've bound it together, and have delivered it to us, Lord. So God, we pray that you would uh, continue to speak to us through your word. Lord, I pray for those in here who don't know you, God, that as, if the, today is the day that they make a decision to follow you, that they'll uh, be given an appetite from you, Lord. Just, just a huge hunger, Lord, to be in your word. God, I pray that that hunger uh, is renewed for many of us, Lord, that already know you, but we've been lazy, we've been distracted, Lord. God, when we come back to your word, and receive all the benefits and all the power that you have. God, may we pursue the learning of your word. May we experience the power of living your word, Lord. God, take our lives. Take the learning that we're we're, we're given, Lord God, and help us to go bless others, to be equipped for every good work that you have for us, Lord. God, take these gifts we're about to receive, and Lord, use them for your good work. So God, I pray that uh, over this next week, as we're in life groups, As we're in this study, Lord God, that you grow us deeper so that we can be impacting our region, our world at a greater level. We ask this in Jesus' name. We all sit together.